Welcome to Stuck in Development, the podcast where two media strategy nerds dissect what's developing in the world of entertainment. I'm your host, Carl, and with me, as always, is Aton. Hey, Aton. Hey, Carl. We're alive. We made it out. We of, are alive. <laughs> of Winterstorm Uri. That's the name of my brother. It's a very Hebrew name, and I sent him that a screenshot. That is weird. It's like Winterstorm Uri. And he's like, what? They're naming Winterstorms now? I thought it was only Hurricanes. But we made it. They, they started doing that a few years ago, and they really just... It, it was funny, like, Noah just decided that they were going to use a bunch of really weird names because they didn't want to conflict with the very boring names of the hurricane list. But also, I think it was just a bunch of meteorology nerds wanting to have fun. Like, I think there was, like, a, a Gandalf in the first year of Winter Storm names. Oh, that's fun. So, yeah. I don't think it's ever going to be an Eitan anything. You never know, Maybe. I guess. You never know. Maybe maybe we can have like a write-in campaign. Hey, every hey, all listeners, you need to write your congressman that Noah needs to have uh, Winterstorm Eitan next year. No, but something fun like a like a heat wave in Alaska. No, that would be awful. It would melt everything. Something nice. Yeah, I mean, they were probably a few years away from a heat wave in Alaska. So, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but hey, we made it. I mean, I think I've said it here. We came to Texas for January and February on purpose to escape the winter. <laughs> and we were literally part like we were in Salex City in the winter, Park City, Colorado, New Mexico. Everything was great. We made it to Texas, no power for four days. Incredible. Anything? What was the craziest thing you saw? Anything? I think the thing is we made a point of not going out. Like we were yeah. safe where we were, but like the house, the apartment went all the way down to like. 40 Fahrenheit so like 4 Celsius and then we didn't want to open the door even so like we didn't really yeah. go outside and also we were we were lucky like the pipes never froze so the bathroom worked at least the toilet um I, I'll post a picture in the in our Twitter about uh how my car looked it was completely covered in translucent ice and my car is orange Oof. so like it glowed uh, but just everything that there were the last day it was frozen rain and then all of the trees looked as if they were made out of like glass yeah it was, it was pretty beautiful if you forget about all the destructiveness but we didn't have any of that bad icing up here in oklahoma we had bad snow and bad ice but not that weird flash freezing ice that's always the most strangely beautiful thing when i was in college we had a storm that like it went from like 60 to 20 in two hours and I was in a meeting and we came out and it was all, everything was freezing. And we had that weird layer of, of ice on our cars. And somebody figured out that if you let your car heat up for a bit and you could put the windows down and there was like a, a layer of water mm. that would form. So it would actually slide down and then we could punch out our windows and look like we were breaking our windows and it was fun. And then we were all freezing and our and wet because we had been punching ice out of our cars. It was real <laughs> stupid. It was a lot which of fun. Is, which is now a TikTok thing. <laughs> like that's like a thing. People punching the windows and saying something like, "We've been trying uh, to contact you about your car extended warranty," or you know something dumb. Wow, I was I was ahead of my time apparently. Yeah, but all to say we're back. We made it. A one week hiatus. Hey, this was the easiest prep I've ever done for an episode because I already did it last week. <laughs> exactly. I, I had to do it this week. I couldn't do it last week. <laughs> yeah. 
Let's this was uh, this is a, a great example of why just in time delivery for this sort of thing is not a great idea because <laughs> then you have like failures of supply chain like we did last week. But hey, we're here. We're excited to talk about uh, the topic this week, but also we've got some news items too, which honestly like a weird amount of, of interesting news this week. So first up, there's an interesting animation deal that's in the works right now with Apple and Skydance Animation. So Skydance is not a household name right now. Skydance Entertainment is a broader production studio. They've chipped in on financing for Mission Impossible and some other films. It's David Ellison, who's Larry Ellison's son, and Megan Ellison of Annapurna fame's sister. Or Megan Ellison is David Ellison's sister. And David wanted to start his own thing. And a few years ago, he hired a bunch of ex-Pixar Disney animation talent, including ousted John Lasseter, to basically start a studio from scratch and they've had a lot of stuff in the works it seems like they're really taking their time to make careful artistic endeavors and apple this week it was announced is kind of all in on skydance and are they're going to manage the distribution for their next few films yeah and the it sounds like there's two films that are have been announced one is called lock and the other one is called spellbound I didn't check, but yeah, the only, the other kind of high-profile person they have is Nathan Greeno, who was the director mm-hmm. of Tangled. Um, but yeah, this is first of all, I didn't know Skydance was only like ten years old, like it opened in yeah. 2010. And yeah, like you mentioned, it's like part of Mission Impossible. But like they also done some like TV. They did like the Jack Ryan stuff with um, John Krasinski. They've done. They're doing the new Top Gun with Tom Cruise. Maybe they do everything with Tom Cruise now. They are they are behind like altered carbon so, yeah. in Netflix, so they've done kind of a lot of high profile stuff in the last ten years. I guess yeah, if you're an Ellison, <laughs> it's easy to do. But it's just another move that is interesting. We've talked about animation and the push that Netflix is doing, and we raved about Wolf Walkers um, with Apple. This is another interesting, interesting one. It does, it does seem to be they're going after household names now. It, I, this is really in brand with your take that they're gonna buy MGM. It feels like oh, more. Yeah, I, I think Apple's like really on board with buying great content rather than a lot of content, and this is just another indication of that. Uh, so directors besides besides Laster, who's kind of running the whole show, which. I mean, it's that's just weird, but I, I don't want to get into that right now. But uh, Alessandro Carloni is directing, who's Kung Fu Panda 3, a DreamWorks person. Vicky Jensen, who was on Shrek. Uh, Nathan Greeno, who's Tangled, which I, I'm very interested to see what he does, because I think Tangled is one of the most interesting-looking animated films in the last two decades. But... Yep. Really interesting is this film Spellbound. Do you know who's doing the music for Spellbound? Trent Ray is not an Atticus. No, <laughs> Just because every I... time you ask me that, I feel like that's the answer. So, <laughs> who, who who is like the biggest, like who's the biggest get in 
animated musicals that you could possibly get as far as a composer. Oh, uh, Alan Minken? Yes, Alan Minken's oh. the music. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That speaks of our geekness because I feel like a lot of people today would say either Lee Manuel Miranda or Robin and Kristen Anderson Lopez. Yeah, I mean, those are also acceptable answers, but they are not free agents right now. They are all in on Disney. Yeah. Yeah. Our composer is Michael Giacchino. Oh, man, we, I, we know more about music and animation than I thought we did. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry, Alan yeah, Menken, that's so fun. Alan Menken, who, I mean, Menken, Menken's a, a great composer. Menken, I've been revisiting a bunch of Disney animation right now, and he's as good as his lyricist. So, I mean, with Ashman, he was great. With Rice, he's okay. With other people, he's whatever, but... It's still an interesting creative voice for them to be investing in that shows that they're going after Disney as opposed to DreamWorks, which is a huge target to be going after. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know why I thought Alan had like a, a like contract. A deal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just to for perspective, like he did Little Mermaid, both composer and songwriter, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin. Focahontas, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Hercules, tremendous music, Hercules. But then Enchanted. he continued with like Home of the Range, Tangled. Encanted, Tangled, yeah, and then apparently Captain America. <laughs> but oh yeah, I'm looking here. Yeah, he did Sausage you. Party, I guess as a joke to mess everyone. And he's doing the new Little Mermaid with a song from Lin Manuel Miranda. The original song in the new Little Mermaid is him and Lin Manuel Miranda. I didn't know that. Clicking away from the Skydance animation page to on Wikipedia to Alan Menken, he has eight Oscars and 11 Grammys and a Tony. Crazy. And an Emmy. I mean, he's an EGOT, so good for good for Alan. He is? He's he officially? Is he missing a... Oh, no, you said he's an Emmy, okay. Daytime Emmy, which is where a lot of these composers get them from, like, kids' shows and stuff. I mean, that's where Bobby Lopez got his... Or... Did he get two of them from daytime animation? Because he's Bobby Lopez is a double EGOT, right? He's like the only double EGOT. I don't know. He's ridiculous. Uh, yeah, he's he's ridiculous, and uh, Kristen is as ridiculous. Have you watched? I know it's a tangent, but we love tangent. Have you watched WandaVision? I'm two episodes behind. I am planning to watch it. I know that. I mean, I know they've been doing all the theme music and that there's a, a theme for Catherine Hahn's character. Yes. Which is apparently great. And that theme <laughs> who's been doing it all along. He's been Agatha blah, or whatever. It's very catchy. <laughs> yeah. It's great. They're going to win another one. One division. Yeah. Well, I anyway, sky yeah. dance, <laughs> sky dance. Don't know why they, Went in on John Lasseter, besides the fact that he was disgraced and cheap. I think that's weird and bad. But beyond that, I'm interested in the creative output. And I this is just reaffirming that I'm very interested in what Apple is doing in the streaming space. Because they are... looks It looks to be funding art more than some of their peers. Yeah. And did you know... Are they managing the release? I know about these two movies and a series, but... Or do they have kind of everything going forward? It's, I think it's ongoing conversations. Everything I've I've seen, I didn't see any numbers around this. And it looks like it's just a deal for the first few movies. 
Okay. Makes sense. But still, cool. It's, it's interesting. And, I mean, we've, we've spoken on here a bit. Like, animation is the, one of the big fronts of the streaming wars because Netflix is, like, quadrupling down on it. I've heard rumblings of Viacom's putting a lot more money into it. It's, I mean, it's it's cheap and you can make it at home comparatively. So we'll see what happens. I mean, it's good for all audiences. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of uh, streaming and animation, I'll just do a quick plug. Everyone knows I love The Book of Life. The Book of Life is finally in Disney+, Plus, which is great. And I invite everyone to watch it, not only because it's great, but because... Atis, Carl and I want to do an episode about, uh, I think in general, representation and kind of, you know, diverse stories, especially in animation. And The Book of Life and Coco are kind of an interesting case study of, uh, you know, the, the day of the death and kind of expanding the mythology of what it could be. Um, so go watch it so that, uh, you know, you, you can get it as most, you can get a lot out of our oncoming episode. Look forward to that episode in the next month or so as we deep dive on that and Eton's history on it. And we also get to talk more about Guillermo del Toro and Alfonso Cuaron. So it's going to be a, a big Eton episode there. Yes. Also, Jorge Gutierrez, who's the director, he has a deal with Netflix now. And every time I tweet about him, he likes the tweet. So I'm just going to continue to interact with him. So if I give you a Book of Life episode, will you give me a Goldfinch episode? Sure. I'll give it to you. I don't know if anyone else is going to listen to it, but yes, I'll give it to you. That's a good trade. We can uh, shoehorn it. It is a, about adaptations gone wrong or something, which <laughs> I, nah, we don't need a Goldfinch episode. But I do think it's funny that we both managed to plug movies we weirdly like a lot and where they're streaming in the same week. So, okay. uh, Yes. I think The Book of Life is... More generally liked than the goldfish. But oh, one one thousand percent. Yes, <laughs> that is not a weird take to like that movie. Okay, perfect. <laughs> well, speaking of movies, another quick news item here is that New York City is reopening theaters to twenty five percent capacity, which is big news because New York and L A have been the. I mean, they're two the two dominant distribution markets for theatrical releases. They disproportionately affect the income and the prestige and the reception of films that are released theatrically. And they've also been shut down for an entire year. And uh, I also like this news because this could help my my prediction that HBO Max is going to change their mind about the day and date release of their movies in May or June and start releasing things in movie theaters only. So... We'll see. We'll see. Now I, California, I, if... I think it's the only one. I think California is the only one that hasn't announced reopenings now. I don't know if I agree with you there. I think AT&T is very incentivized to make this strategy work, like as a long-term oh. thing or some hybrid thing. So I'm I'm not sure if I think that they'll completely get rid of it. I also don't know if theaters are open, who's going to be going because we've kind of debated on here about the like ethics of this which i think we're both on the same page that this is safer than going to a restaurant which people are fine with at this point for some reason so 
Yeah, I, I, I just don't, I don't know if the culture is going to come back until just like everyone can go to a theater and it's normal again, which will be a year or two away. Listen, it wouldn't be a hot take or a bold take if it was obvious. I can see, this is even one that I'm not 100% sure, I can obviously see both sides. This seems to be working great for HBO Max, at least based on Wonder Woman. We haven't talked about it, but did you watch Judas and the Black Messiah? Not yet. Okay, I really liked it, but nobody talked about it. Like zero, I, I saw zero conversation online. And this is probably going to be kind of an Oscars play for both Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Steinfeld. And probably the movie. And like nobody said anything. But like we said, most of their big stuff is in the second half of the year. But we'll, we'll see. I think HBO has figured out a way to get me to... I mean, this whole pandemic, I've it's been so hard for me to watch new releases because I'm just like kind of just bummed that I'm watching them on a on a laptop as a because I don't like really I don't have a really good AV setup here at my parents' house right now. I'm watching things on a laptop in my room, not the best. But the fact that it's only a 30 day window before it goes to premium VOD mm-hmm. and then kind of exists in limbo for a few months, like I'm gonna watch. Judas and the Black Messiah at some point in the next few weeks. And I'm excited to. I'm glad you liked it. And more importantly, like, I love Daniel Kaluuya and really, really, really like Lakeith Stanfield. I love him too. I just don't love him as much as Daniel. So I'm excited to see them in great roles. Yeah, and that will be another interesting one to bring up during the conversation around um, representation and inclusion. Because I thought a lot about that after watching that movie. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, quickly, just to the point of doing a good job of bringing you to watch it, the next kind of use case is two weeks from now, it's Raya and the Last Dragon, which is going to come out in Disney in theaters and in premier access. So 30 bucks, you know, I'm going to pay 30 bucks. Um, and that's also going to be in line with our conversation about kind of representation on how to deal with that. I'm, we're teasing too much this episode. Um, another... <laughs> A story that is kind of connected to the topic that we're going to talk about was that uh, in our back in our first episode we shared how Virgin Galactic chose a new Z- Virgin Galactic is going to be doing like commercial trips to space. They chose a new CEO. His name is Michael Cole Glacier, who was the president and managing director of Disney Parks. And how when Carl and I think about entertainment and especially in-person entertainment, suddenly there is like this new crazy stuff and adventures that can be done. And today it was announced that Joe Rohde, who is kind of in the pantheon of Imagineers and theme park designers, um, is joining Virgin Galactic as, what's his title? Like, Head of Adventure Design or something like that? Yeah, I mean, just generally he's going to be running experiences at, or designing experiences with Virgin Galactic. Which is funny because, I mean, he just left a the primo spot of Disney Imagineering where the the biggest flagship Imagineering project right now is Galactic Star Cruiser, the Star Wars hotel, which is a fake spaceship. And now he's graduated to working on real spaceships. So good for Joe. Which is crazy. And I think he's a he's a good he's a good choice. Joe Rody I think was kind of a weird, like when you compare him to like a Tony Baxter or like he designed, he was a head engineer for Animal Kingdom and Animal Kingdom has a weird, I think, uh, 
like space in theme parks because it's is the I think is the only one that kind of wants to take culture kind of seriously. Like it puts mm-hmm. it puts the human in the center, and all of like if you follow him on Instagram, like he cares a lot about even though a lot of the things are made up, like traveling and trying to bring like actual cultures and things from around the world to try to expose people to them. Now, whether it makes, you know, this should replace actual cultures, of course not. But I, I think yeah. he, he does pay his attention to to kind of putting the person in the middle. He's done a lot of attractions that are not IP related. Um, so I see him interested. He's an interesting person to be thinking about, you know, when you get into the elevator to go to the spaceship. Like, what should we be thinking about? Like, what is a person, mm-hmm. how to make this exciting it's a it's an interesting jump for sure. It's gonna look weird in his LinkedIn. <laughs> if you don't know who Joe Reddy is, just like look up YouTube footage of him being interviewed. He's a a weird dude. He's definitely he's just kind of this like hippie dude. He has a a very large earring, which I'm I imagine probably giving him neck problems at this point from weighing his head to one side. Which and also I don't know how that's gonna if you're gonna wear the earring in zero G. We'll see, but. <laughs> He's just this this like hippy dippy imagineer dude who, like Aton said, like loves traveling and taking things from uh, other cultures. I think he does a, a good he walks a good line of representation rather than, than appropriation, like mm-hmm. trying to honor the spirit of these things rather than necessarily being like this is the definitive take on X culture or whatnot. Um, but yeah, it's it's certainly it's a great hire for this because this is a great like second or third act for the dude a def- de- definitely a different playground than uh, imagineering was the one thing that i'm interested to see is i think my my biggest critique of of imagineering under roadie mm-hmm. is that so much of his rides and experiences that he made he he loves grafting very complex narratives onto rides that don't need a narrative at all like if you look at um avatar flight of passage or the guardians of the galaxy mission breakout ride Mm -hmm. like there's all these belabored explanations for why like you're just flying a thing around or in an elevator that's going wrong whereas just like you kind of don't need that and it's gonna be really interesting to see how he balances that very like literal nature in his personality with like the profundity of literal space flight. <laughs> He's gonna make a backstory to why are you going to yeah. space? You 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 joked we were texting about this earlier, and you joked that so in the Guardians of the Galaxy ride, you have they, there's a narrative reason for why you're raising your hands in the air from falling, which is like you have to activate some sensor or something, and it's yeah. the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I, it's so stupid, and you were just like. Oh, so is he going to have some hand-raising thing on the space plane? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, Uh. people don't do it. But it's... uh, (laughs) This is also a perfect segue to the the last news item, which is... uh, I agree that sometimes it goes overboard. I think you gave the two perfect examples (laughs) when it does. But there is this other ride, like, I think one of the most famous ones is the version of... In the Hollywood Tower of Terror in uh, Tokyo. It's not Mm -hmm. about... It's not actually like Tower of Terror because it's a cultural thing with ghosts. So it's themed more closely to like the Mystic Manor in Hong Kong, which is around this explorer that, you know, uh, 
is kind of haunted by he gets lost in like his collection of whatever and throughout his rides and his parks he's built like this ip that only lives in the theme parks for disney that is called the c the society of explorers and adventurers where a lot of people from a lot of rides from these stories are members and it's not you know it's not anything official there's no book there is no whatever uh, but he kind of brings that flavor that people try to find, like Easter eggs that connect things and that talk about things. And the last news item was that uh, Ron Moore from like Star Trek and Battlestar Galactica and uh, all of Mankind fame, he had a, a deal with 20th Century Fox, so now he has a deal with Disney. And he's going to be doing a quote-unquote Magic Kingdom universe, like a series for Disney+, Plus that is going to take all of these... I guess IP, not IP, like all of these original rides from around the world and trying to connect them around apparently this C, Society of Explorers and Adventurers, which could go very well or very wrong. We've seen them try, yeah. like bringing Jack Sparrow into parts of the Caribbean was like, you know, very little and very small, but it still feels kind of dumb. Um, I'm just curious to see what happens. I like bringing theme parks into other places, but they need to be very careful. I learned like 20 minutes ago that Ronald D. Moore was the showrunner or creator of For All Mankind, which despite me complimenting Apple's media strategy earlier, For All Mankind, I have like no interest in For All Mankind. Like Joel Kinnaman is like the blandest actor. I like the most generic dude I've ever seen and just, Whatever. Ronald D. Moore being involved in that and in this is interesting because he was a very important piece of the the modern Star Trek revival in the 90s with Star Trek and the Next Generation and subsequent shows. He then got to, to reboot Battlestar Galactica in his own image, and that's like a beloved touchstone of, of TV sci-fi and just an interesting dude. So this is a, a cool pick to run this sort of thing. The Society of, of Explorers and Adventurers, or C, is something that I I agree with you is well done because it's well done because it's not the text of the rides. It's just kind of this weird thing that like if you dig into it or look at like all the decorations, it's, you can kind of piece a grander myth, mythos and narrative together, but there's not really that much there's not content around there's there's not like books or movies or anything around it and therefore i worry that taking this subtext and making it text is just going to like make the whole c thing really lame and frustrating and also become a feedback loop of like further ipification of the parks mm -hmm. but at the same time if the only way we can get new rides that aren't based on like frozen or whatever is to make ip out of the original ip in the parks i could be on board with with this so we'll see on board pun intended keeping your arms and legs inside the yeah. vehicle mm -hmm. yeah exactly <laughs> Perfect. and we'll with with c c is interesting too because it's like c is dangerously close to like colonialist exploration attitudes 100 it, it's way too close to that and therefore i'm very hesitant at disney's ability to steer it 
out of that territory. But we'll see. I have to, yeah, I have to do some more research. Like, I've seen it in a couple of places, but not everywhere. But yeah, most of the yeah. places where it appears is like colonialism and connected to your roadie, like taking things out from other cultures and bringing it to your place and stealing. Yeah. But anyway, speaking of theme parks, today we're going to spend most of our time talking about theme parks. Talking about one of the crown, <laughs> crown jewels of theme parks, I think. Just maybe not in terms of like quality. But in terms of the amount of space that it takes, at least in our heads and in the conversation. And again, you said the word earlier, but like the mythos that gets built around <laughs> a piece of real estate somewhere. So I think this, this should be fun. If you and I made a list of top five theme park things we would want to do that we haven't been able to do or are, are not able to do in history, like this would be solidly in both of our top fives because it's so strange 100 percent, no doubt it, yeah this it would be right alongside the uh, brazier shop on me on opening day at disneyland for me <laughs> getting buying cigars <laughs> from a lady exactly <laughs> but we are of course talking about superstar limo the most the most vile I was going to say, what's the opposite of beloved? Hated? Just, it's recognized as like kind of universally the worst ride Disney has ever made. And a just hallmark of terrible theme park rides that are like at these AAA level theme parks. And I think from, from Carl and my perspective, and hopefully we'll make it interesting for everyone, is like, it's such a perfect combination of so many things that happened for it to happen that it just puts everything into perspective and it feels like you're looking at history as you will go through it. Yeah. And uh, hopefully a lot of you haven't ever heard of Superstar Limo and we can tell you the story for the first time because that would be an honor. Yes, it would be. Yeah, before we spend a ton of time talking about this, I do want to justify spending this much time talking about a bad theme park ride. So the, the biggest justification here is that it's the 20th anniversary, give or take a week, of Disney California Adventure. There was a snowstorm. It's the, just say it's the 20th anniversary. It's okay. <laughs> it's, a, it's 20th anniversary of Disney California Adventure, the second gate of Disneyland Resort, which we will define that over the course of the episode. <laughs> 20 years ago, this park opened... It opened a very, to a lot of fanfare, and it fell flat immediately. And this ride kind of typifies what the early days of that park were and the failings of the development of that park and the launch of that park. So, in short, this is one really awful ride. We want to talk about how awful it was. We want to show why it was so awful, like what made it that way. Then we want to talk about how they fixed it and why they had to fix it in the way that they fixed it. And that's kind of the goal for this episode. And it's it's why it's very theme park strategy in, in how people are approaching the design of these things. I even think like, <laughs> not only strategy, I think you can define Mike Leisner's and Bob Iger's impact on the Disney company just by looking at Superstar Limo and then what it became as Monster Sync. One being yeah. the end, literally, of Michael Eisner and then Iger coming in 
and rebuilding it. Like it's a perfect metaphor of these two CEOs. Oh, absolutely. I know this is getting too niche, sorry. <laughs> Let's get started here. So second gate is something I said, which is a very like inside theme parks term. It's literally all that means is that it's a second park at a resort. So early on theme parks were just established as independent things that kind of grew and expanded, especially in the case of like Disneyland, Walt Disney puts it right in smack in, in Anaheim. And you can't really expand beyond the Disneyland complex because like the land value all went up and then you have neighbors and it's, it's all crazy. So part of why Disney world came to be was Disney wanted to like not have that problem and have a lot of space to expand and grow but there's also a perk in having multiple parks, which there, I mean, there's a few par- perks. You have the financial perk if you can charge more for multiple entries. You can also kind of spread around the, the traffic and the money and, and the, the attention. And if one park is being renovated, you can kind of direct people to another one. And there's, there's just all these synergies of having multiple gates. But the problem was, in California, they were space-constrained, and they only had this one really old but, like, flagship most important park ever, and they needed to figure out a way to draw more people there. They Yeah, with, with Disney World in Orlando, like you said, they realized that making a multi-day destination where people would go to Orlando just to go to Disney was such a powerful incentive, and... Yeah. Even if they realize, you know, maybe in the 80s with Epcot and Hollywood Studios, they've been trying, they were trying to do something in, in California for, for decades and they just could never do it. There was this crazy story about a West Coast. There was this crazy story about a Disney Sea, an original Disney Sea that was going to be in Long Beach and trying to fight, you know, put the Anaheim and the Long Beach government to fight to see who could pay more for them. But the biggest thing is like they needed a second gate because. Disneyland was just locals going for one day and going back to their homes. Nobody was coming from somewhere. No, not that many people were coming just to go to Disneyland. And that would be a big draw. Right. You, you look at the typical Disney World vacation. It's in Central Florida, 40 minutes from an airport, kind of in the middle of nowhere. So you get off your plane, you get on a bus, you go to a hotel at Disney, and you're staying on Disney property, you're in a hotel paying Disney, you pay Disney for all your food, you stay there multiple days and go to multiple parks because you want to see everything the resort has to offer and try a bunch of things or go revisit things. And maybe you take a day trip up to Orlando to do Universal or something else, or you go to the beach, but probably not for the case of a lot of family vacations because it is just a logistical hassle to do that but then contrast that with a disneyland vacation which wasn't really a thing like you said it was a, a park where a lot of locals would go or it's something you work into an la trip you're going to la you go hit that up uh for a day because it really only takes a day to do one of these parks and then after that you would probably go back either to LA, hang out in LA, or maybe you might go elsewhere in California if you're international, so you can go see like Yosemite or San Francisco or what have you. And it seems like that's exactly what Disney realized uh, in the mid-90s when they finally 
decided that they have some budget, very little, and we'll get into why, to do a second gate, they started to think about what they could do. They made an executive retreat in Aspen to think about theme parks. <laughs> oh, Carl, doesn't sound like, the, like the, the highlight of our careers. Like, could you imagine? Oh, yeah, we're going on a retreat to Aspen to decide what our next theme park is going to be about. <laughs> I would kill to, like, have been in that meeting where it's just... We need to come up with a second Disneyland level park that like the most influential thing that in theme park history, we want to make another one. And we're just like 20 of us are going to go to Aspen for the weekend and just like drink and eat and talk about theme parks for a weekend. That sounds like ridiculous. The greatest day ever (laughs) weekend. ever. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, apparently there are so many stories of like how they pit, like they made teams and each one had to pitch an idea. And basically what they ended up choosing was exactly what Carl said. They realized that a lot of people went to California to do a lot of things, to go to the Santa Monica Pier, to go to the to San Francisco to see the Golden Gate, to go to Hollywood. And then they said, how about we do a theme park that it's about California and it's set in California. And even if the people come to California to see the actual version of all of these things, we make it a California-themed park. It makes a certain amount of sense. Michael Eisner, you and I are both obsessed with Michael Eisner. Anybody who spends any time looking into theme parks with Disney's history is obsessed with Michael Eisner because he's... He's a product of the 80s Hollywood studio system. He he ran Paramount. He was the studio head there. He had a, a certain amount of success and then ended up being brought in to manage this kind of ailing legacy brand with Disney. And he brought this like running a major movie studio mentality to Disney where he wanted to bring in the best talent. He was real big on pitches like. He wanted people, just like writers, come in to pitch their movies. He wanted Imagineers to come in and pitch, or he would have days where, like, janitors can come in and pitch movies or, or whatever. Like, he was just all about everyone pitching all the time. As a studio head, he would be very active and hands-on, and they'd give lots of notes and, and kind of force the hand of a lot of creators, and he brought that mentality here, which worked great when he was bringing in, had the best people in the late 80s early 90s that were not yes men and were actively pushing back against his instincts like your Jeffrey Katzenbergs or your uh Frank Wells and and just these these great legacy executives of of Disney history and then you've got the the creatives and animation and, and music and what have you but then a lot of things happened that pushed these people away that destroyed the financial outlook of disney and he's at this point where it's like what is the easiest layup of an idea we can come up with which is yeah what if we just create a microcosm of the state we're in so people don't have to leave and go to those places they just spend a second day and see everything california has to offer in one day and I do want to touch just a little bit because you did mention of like all the things that happened to get us here. And I want to spend two minutes because I think from our like management heads, it's so interesting to look at literally what happened, right? When we think of a company making a decision, it's people. 
it's literally, you know, you and I, if we were in charge of something we decide and our personal lives impact yeah. everything that we decide. And there are things like they opened Euro Disney at the time, which is now Disneyland Paris, uh, 10 years before, like seven years before. They were literally planning this park. And it was a resounding failure the first couple of years. They lost a ton of money. So suddenly the amount of money that they had available and the investors' hunger for another Michael Lasner-led park wasn't as large. And then another thing for Michael Lasner is that Frank Wells, you mentioned, who he was the head of, um, I think, Warner Brothers. He was the COO for Michael Eisner. They were kind of a great partnership. They were kind of a yin and yang. And around this time, in 1994, uh, Frank Wells dies in a helicopter crash. And when you read like Disney War or when you look at these things, it talks about how like Michael Eisner, they say that he lost something. You know, he suddenly, not only had him, so there is like a sadness, but his management style changes, right? The type of things he thinks about changes. You mentioned Jeffrey Katzenberg and others leaving and not having anyone kind of pushing back and it changes. And then suddenly you, you end up with a couple of things that happen that it's like, this is so weird, right? The next CEO of Disney is Michael Ovitz, who is uh, an agent. He's he, he, he like the founder of CAA, like one of the he was, yeah. huge uh, agencies in, in Disney. And uh, you suddenly start to see how all of this coalesces into what happens, which I, I find very interesting. But I know our brain might work differently than others. <laughs> oh, I, you just name dropped a mutual favorite book of ours, which is Disney War by James B. Stewart. Uh, who also wrote Barbarians at the Gate about the Nabisco leverage buyout, like fantastic business writer, but also very gossipy business writer. Mm-hmm. But it's it, Disney War is an, a a poorly named but incredible book about just the rise and fall of Michael Eisner's tenure at Disney because he was the person responsible pretty much single handedly for creating what the modern Disney company looks like, but also he's responsible for. I mean, when we were adolescents, like Disney being this like bizarre, bad brand, <laughs> because just he he funded everything, wanted everyone to have these grand creative ideas, but then like kind of let his ego and instinct get the best of him and wanted more and just kind of lost control of, of the company and of spending and everything. And Euro Disney was kind of the peak of that, just the hubris of going to the French people and saying like, I mean, they, the French viewed it as cultural colonization, like this Disney coming in and just, they, what did they, what was the phrase? Uh, they called it a cultural Chernobyl was what the newspapers called it. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> we, yeah. Which is in stark contrast. I think the contrast now is with Shanghai, which if you read about it, hopefully you, I mean, it's still weird, but they made a huge deal about making it Chinese specific. And making it around the Chinese culture and trying to bring in the values that they have, which they didn't do at all for the French, the French one. And also, French, you know, um, they can be very cynical and push back. That's my prejudice, maybe, or at least you know they they're very vocal and they just went down and said like we don't want this. And when it opens, yeah, it was a big big failure. Yeah. So they started at the early the beginning of the nineties thinking okay, we're going to bring another park experience to our flagship 
like home park near our studio that like where everything started back in 1955. So we're going to obviously be spending so much money on this to make it the best we can. Uh, like, like I said, they, they went through a few iterations of it. The probably the best iteration of it was um, this thing that they called Westcott, which was taking the Epcot park in Florida and kind of shrinking it down, but kind of taking the, the greatest hits of it and putting it in, in Anaheim. It was just too expensive and like I think so much of it was they really wanted to like recreate Spaceship Earth, which is the um the big geodesic dome at the center of Epcot, but they wanted to, to call it Space Station Earth and make it twice as large and gold and just everyone in Anaheim just thought it was gonna be an eyesore, which I don't know, maybe, but I mean have you been to, I mean, we've been to Anaheim. Anaheim's an eyesore. Like, it's one of the most, like, awful cities I've ever been to, honestly. <laughs> oh Sorry God. if anybody here is from Anaheim and is offended by me insulting your city. <laughs> but that's that's going to come back. I think we're going to talk about it. One of the issues that Cali- Disney California have. They had this idea, and then they were trying to do this thing uh, called Disney Sea. So you have Disneyland... Disney Sea is the analog of it. Something ultimately realized in Tokyo, but they were actually going to put it over in Long Beach next to the Queen Mary, and that failed too, just because they couldn't quite get the city of Long Beach to agree to it. So just Anaheim and Long Beach were at war with them. Then all of a sudden the money disappears. So it's like, okay, cool. We need a second park. We're going to tear out a parking lot and put in a second park. What can we do? And that's what brings us to this Aspen retreat where they pitch the California thing. And uh, as as development starts, kind of where they end up is that they end up with this uh, very weird park that is developed into four main areas. Um, the first one, it's called... I'm going to start try to go in order. It was called the Hollywood Land, which was very in brand with Los Angeles, very similar to what they had in Hollywood Studios. They had this area, and we'll come back to Hollywood. We're going to spend most of the time here. They had the Golden State area where Soarin was, which Soarin was probably the only like good attraction that came out of opening day DCA. Uh, it's still there. It's still great. It has Patrick Warburton. Uh, super good. <laughs> and then it had this last area. Sorry, there were only three called uh, Paradise Pier, which was basically all about Santa Monica and being exactly the same. And if you look at a map, I I think I'm also going to post this on Twitter so you can find it there. It's super small. And there aren't basically any attractions. What you end up with is, so they wanted to recreate California and they decided to do it by having a bizarre entryway which like has a mural and a weird sun sculpture and stuff and that's about it you have the hollywood backlot area which literally like if you've ever been on a hollywood backlot all a backlot is is a bunch of facades that are very obviously facades when you're near them and they're pretty just uninteresting they like it's not even like the normal most of disneyland is a facade but it looks like a real city this is like poorly themed bad like cardboardy looking stuff uh you have and you have the well-themed area uh where soren is and then you have paradise pier which is off the shelf carnival rides that you could go to like any parking lot 
in America in the fall and like ride in a one of these rides. Like completely unremarkable, not worth the price of admission, not worth spending an entire second day of your California vacation to go to. Not only that, but behind the Paradise Pier you mentioned, you could actually see the convention center that is right behind. Like, the whole park just lacked this immersion and ability to feel like you're in, in another, you know, universe. Uh, you just felt like you were in this uh, rackety, regular theme park board work thing. Which is, is really funny considering, if you go back to the, the early histories, history of Disneyland, the reason Disneyland was this, like, turning point in amusement parks was because until Disneyland amusement parks were that they were just a bunch of random rides and experiences tied together that were kind of junky kind of trashy but like you went and had fun and it was like a carnival which i mean is great like i love that as much as the next person but disney didn't like it because he thought it was kind of crass and smelly and ugly and gross so he wanted to make something better than that so that's where he came up with the idea of a theme park which uh, Knott's Berry Farm had done pretty well and had started doing, and they had grown out of their, like, berry farm stand into an actual kind of more themed destination. But Disney wanted to take this and actually make it feel like you were transported to different locations, completely immersed in something else. And it's just so interesting that from there, the germ of this ends up spiraling into Disney California Adventure, which is just completely not immersive at all. Just to put things in perspective, if anyone that's listening has been to Disney California Adventure, Hollywood Tower of Terror wasn't there. The Little Mermaid wasn't there. Um, Carl's Land, all of Carl's Land wasn't there. No Toy Pixar Story Mania at all. Yeah, no Pixar theming. Uh, it was rough. And you might be thinking like, well... If they took, like Carl, like you said, uh, off-the-shelf kind of rides, and all of this was so boring, like, where did the Imagineers spend their time? Superstar Limo. They had this idea for, if we're going to bring people into California and we're going to make them experience, you know, how this state looks or is, and we have a Hollywood backlot, what's the most, like, you know, Hollywood experience we can give anyone? And they decided that that idea would be to make you feel like you were a celebrity and paparazzis were trying to take a picture of you as you raced towards the Chinese theater to try to sign a contract with Michael Eisner for your next movie. Honestly, not a bad idea for a ride. Like, very much a Michael Eisner idea for a ride because it's, like, the it's about inside him. Hollywood I mean, experience. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's something that... Makes makes total sense. But he was going to, like, be... Video footage of him was going to be in the ride with, like, Mickey Mouse and stuff. And it was going to be, like, a fun thing. Like, I don't think the original idea of this was bad. It was going to be this high-speed kind of roller coaster dark ride hybrid. Which a dark ride is is a, a classic ride. Most rides at Disney parks are dark rides where you kind of sit and they're slower. But it's all about the theming and the animatronics and the fun of it rather than the thrill of it. And this was going to be kind of a hybrid of both, which sounds really cool. And uh, a couple of things happened here. The first one was we talked about budget constraints that started kind of 
lowering and lowering the expectation. But the biggest thing, and again, this is just fascinating, the world, the real world impacts these things. Uh, Lady D died in Paris, apparently because of, yeah, paparazzi was, you know, the, the, the chauffeur was trying to get away from paparazzi or trying to, to take pictures of her, and there was a crash in a tunnel. And then suddenly, the idea that you were in a high-speed car trying to get away from paparazzis didn't really make sense anymore. This was suddenly something that uh, the world was shocked by. And we're like, okay, well, we like the idea in general. We're going to have to tweak the specifics. Do you remember Princess Diana dying? I do remember. I I do too, despite, like, I Which was weird. four. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember coming home and my mother like telling me, like showing me the, the newspaper, <laughs> and and like I I, I don't know why I remember the picture of the tunnel, and like the yeah. the flowers. It just was this, it was this thing where. I mean, I think it's just because it was like such an accident and so awful, and like kind of partially caused by her celebrity and just, and all this stuff with like Charles and Princess Diana was so salacious, like. I think it was just like a confluence of so much, but worst case scenario for a company building a high-speed paparazzi chase ride for a very tragic and public death to be caused by a high-speed paparazzi ride. Insane. (laughs) Insane. (laughs) So when you take budget cuts, you take a change to the idea, you take... (laughs) Uh, you know, speed reasons. All of these things always take longer than expected. Kind of what what ended up happening with with Superstar Limo is that it became uh kind of a tour. I guess is the right way to say it. Right? You you are arriving into yeah. LA, and you're getting into a limo, and you are as you as you get driven to sign an offer with an agent. Now, not you know, not Michael Eisner anymore. Uh, at that point, he started getting in in fights with uh, with some of the shareholders, and he didn't want to be in the spotlight so much. Um, you would see kind of a lot of celebrities in Hollywood. You would see animatronics, quote unquote, because I don't even know if we can call these animatronics, of of actors, of literal celebrities. But then suddenly, you are Disney. You only have contracts with a couple of these actors, right? So your mm-hmm. universe of people that you can use is actually not everyone. And when you try to make animatronics of people that actually exist, you know, in the 19s, usually things don't come out as expected. And not only that, but you're trying to get them in positions and doing things that they're usually known for. So they end up having a Tim Allen animatronic and uh jackie chan half kicking someone animatronic um what's the guy from uh original guy from whose line is it anyway drew carey drew carey animatronic like just these random collections of people that if you are i mean especially for me if i would have been in this right i probably wouldn't know 95 percent of these people if you're a kid do you know the name of anyone any of these people you still see this today sometimes where like ABC will weirdly have Jimmy Fallon mm-hmm. with a dozen other like celebrities that don't quite go together. And it's just because they're all like Disney property adjacent or whatnot. And the same thing here. A lot of these were just like ABC stars or like 
Whoopi Goldberg, who just like kept appearing in every Disney thing for a while. But yeah, it, it's a it's a weird experience. We're gonna I'm gonna throw a link to a ride through in the the show notes for this because just you, you need to see this thing for yourselves. We'll we'll try and describe it, but it's better if you just take the the like four minutes to watch footage <laughs> of this ride. It is junky. It looks straight out of like a a, a bad like boardwalk ride. It's very cardboard, like you mentioned. Uh, typically Disney rides, like the one thing that they're known for is having fantastic detailed animatronics. They're called audio animatronics or AAs for short. And they're, uh, they used to be, they used to run on hydraulics. Now they kind of have pretty quick twitch electric motors in them, but just these incredibly advanced things. And meanwhile, these are essentially robots with like one point of articulation that kind of rock back and forth that are not detailed at all. They kind of swing. <laughs> it feels like they—they they kind of look like they look like they look like those bad like caricature drawings mixed with wax figures. I was gonna say <laughs> that's funny. I was gonna say that they look between a comic book and figures that you would find in like a laser shot dungeon. <laughs> you know. So yeah, but between those four th- touch points, you can just kind of visualize how terrible these things are. They're really ugly. They're just unpleasant. And even worse is they have some more detailed ones that, like, talk and move that they show in video footage. One is Swifty LaRue, the agent, who is the most, like, disgusting, scary-looking man I've ever seen. And then they have this uh, this Drone Rivers one, too, that talks in the pre-show area. And it's just, it's just very alarming. It looks like something, like, it's like a Tim Burton reject. It's, it's terrible. And it's so terrible that uh, Disney usually makes like these specials when they open new theme parks or rides. Especially yeah. the old ones are great. And if you watch the DCA one, they do a ride through with this bunch of Billy celebrities. And I don't know the name of any of them. I guess Drew Carey is there and Rosie yeah. O'Donnell. And do you know who the other two are? I'm, I'm blanking, yeah. Well, anyway, these four random Billy celebrities going through. And you can see how they are so uncomfortable and not laughing at anything. And then you realize that this is the footage that they were able to include in the special. And you're like, oh my God, these people that are literally get paying them to go through this are having such an awful time. What are guests going to think? <laughs> well, guests hated it. It's It got decent reviews in the uh, local newspapers like the pre-shows there's always previews with press around these things which is typically disney friendlies so both orlando and la have theme park reporters for the local newspapers just because it's it's part of the the business sector there and all in all the la business reporters around theme parks were like oh it's cute it's whatever it's an homage to hollywood but it's it's just terrible. It, it's so terrible that it lasted less than a year before Disney closed it. Which is bananas. Disney's research arm, like, they, if you ever go to a Disney park, there's always these people, like, just kind of standing around with iPads that'll be like, hey, can I ask you a question? And they'll just ask you, like, some random question, like, did you notice this on this ride? Or 
How do, how do you like your corn dog? But they're just continually amassing all of this customer data. And I imagine that they were doing something very similar here. And Disney's research group found that this ride being open was a net negative on the park. They just closed it and didn't re-theme it or anything. They decided that this thing being open was just a detriment. That's insane. Which is even, when you think, compounded by the fact that they didn't have that many rides. And they decided to close it. And then not only did they close it, it stayed closed for five years. Yeah. Or like four and a half years. Which is like, we just have to get rid of this thing. We have to erase it from the memory of anyone doing it here. And it's just one of those things that, yeah, if we could go back in time and go to DCA, one of those 11 months and visit Superstar Limo. I mean, it's it's something that if it existed, I would ride every time I went to that park because it's just, it's so strange. It's it's bad. It's It's garish looking. It's just unpleasant. It doesn't look very fun, but I think there's something charming about how bad it is. The same way that you like cats? It's exactly the same. Yeah, no, it's the cats of theme park rides. Absolutely. It looks the same, bad technology and CGI. Yeah. So they literally decide to close this less than a year after it opened. And we mentioned that in the Disneyland Resort, real estate is precious they don't have any space so then all of a sudden while it stayed closed for almost five years uh there were a couple of ideas that they have how to rhythm it the first one were like super you know low-hanging fruit change a couple of animatronics here and there took the story a little bit they weren't enough the next one is one that i would actually i think would have enjoyed which is was gonna make they were gonna make it goofy's superstar limo Mm -hmm. in general mickey mini you know Donald Duck and Goofy are not really in the theme parks in rides, but the idea was here again because everything is so cheap and they don't have money and they have this thing that they already built. They have a track. They have things. How do we make this better? At the time, they were <laughs> they were they were re- so bad. They were renewing, like refurbishing a lot of Disney stores, like throughout <laughs> malls in the U.S. So they were taking out a lot of like figures like statues of like mickey or chip and dale or whatever tinkerbell and peter pan and the idea was to literally just take all of these uh structures and spread them throughout the throughout the the ride it would have been wild and then the last one which i think this would not have also been fun the ride was next to uh moppets uh three division and the idea was that they were gonna the ride was going to stay the same, but they would have like a, you know, like a Gonzo sitting on a bulldozer doing something in a corner. And then a month later, they would have a Kermit, like like construction going as the ride happened. And they were going to yeah. start to transition it. Like they would make a joke of how bad it was and talking about how the Muppets were trying to fix it and take it over. And it was going to transition to be kind of a, a Muppet arriving, you know, making fun of Hollywood type of thing that again from a creative perspective if these are people working with really uh you know not a lot of resources suddenly right you can't tear it down because you don't have money you have to do something with it uh, it's they're very frugal the idea of taking structure from the disney stores is priceless yeah the buffet one is actually not i don't think that terrible of yeah, an idea 
I just I think the bloom was kind of off the ro- the rose with the Muppets at the time period. Just Muppet Vision didn't last in that park very long. It's the Muppets were kind of between their storybook phase and the like Jason Siegel movie phase. So just I, I I see why that one didn't go, but I think that's probably the best version of what this ride would have been in that form. I cannot believe like it's just mind blowing to me that they were going to take like these awful junky animatronics and then put static statues of characters that came from like malls and just put lots of statues around the rides so that you could see other characters. Like that's so mind bogglingly. That's that's worse than Superstar Limo. <laughs> it's just amazing. Uh, it's incredible. So they ultimately just didn't even bother with either of these. The the ideas neither idea got traction. So instead of using the space that's very valuable real estate, they just left it closed for like you said just four five years and then they decided to do something about it and at this time uh 2000 2005 michael eisen officially steps down bob Iger becomes the ceo the first thing that bob Iger, bob I- bob Iger, bob <laughs> there are a lot of bobs in disney but bob Iger does is uh shakes hand with steve jobs becomes friends again with pixar and decides to buy pixar outright and Suddenly, the anima- the, uh, the animatronics, the Imagineers, sorry for all the <laughs> typos in this episode. Uh, suddenly, the Imagineers realized that uh, they could actually do something pretty special with this ride, in my opinion. And is that they turn it into uh, the definition of a dark ride and tell the story of a movie throughout the ride. And they decide to do it with Monster Sync. Uh, Monster Sync came out uh, a couple of years before. It was a huge success. At this time, there wasn't basically any Pixar uh, IP in the parks, apart from a box. It's tough to be a bug, which was in DCA. And again, they take the, you know, kind of extreme creativity, resource constrained. Let's be creative and work with what we have. So this is what they do. They leave the track exactly as it is. They leave the cars Exactly as they are, they just paint them yellow so that they now look like taxis as you go through Metropolis. They strip most of these animatronics. Well, it's unclear how much they strip them as in if they take their skin out, but they just put yellow latex (laughs) suits on top of them. And they basically make all the animatronics that were in the ride, they make them members of this monster scene. How is it called in English? Like this hazmat suit wearing. Oh, people. it's uh, the the CD. child protection, the child protection agency. Yes, the CPA, I guess. Yeah. And and then suddenly you have a lot of things to work with because you suddenly said, like, "Hey, I have all of these animatronics, and I don't really have to do anything with them except put these things on top of them." And before going with everything in, it's uncanny. If you look at the animatronics side by side, there are a lot of places where it's like I mentioned Jackie Chan doing a kick. There is one of these like hazmat suit wearing people doing the kick. They literally just put them on top of them and they move exactly in the same way. There was this animatronic showing like 
they, she was he was trying to like show you three maps of Hollywood or whatever, and now is this animatronic showing you three pictures of Boo so that you know about yeah. it? And it's just it's fascinating. It it is fascinating, and there's a long history of repurposing animatronics within the parks. So a lot of the animals on Splash Mountain were from America Sings, which we talked about, and that's just these hydraulic systems are heavy and expensive and like kind of already built them once might as well repurpose them with splash mountain they were animals so they just kind of were pretty easy to transfer in this case like you said they just it's unclear what they did but they they ripped whoopi goldberg's skin off and and put a costume on and it's weird yeah <laughs> it's very weird and I think they did spend a little bit in just a couple of places, but it really pays off. They have a, a scene where Randall, who's a bad guy, like Boo is hitting on him and he changes like mm-hmm. his skin, the way he looks, and that looks great. And they have a scene with the doors and they just have a couple of them and they play with mirrors so that it looks like the doors are going. Yeah. That I think works very well. And uh, as you can tell, I really like this riot. This is kind of a perfect whimsical. It's going to last five minutes and it's going to tell you the story of Monster Sync. It's nothing special. It's nothing super out of the top. But up until a few years ago, DCA didn't have a lot of these things. And this ride actually works very well. It's like a Fantasyland ride in California Adventure. And I really like it, especially considering what they had to work with. Where do you stand on Monster Sync? I think you've changed your mind I'm, a little bit over the past couple of I've months. changed my mind a little bit on it. I, I do think it's a great salvage job. Like They took a bad situation great. and they, they did an, it. And It's an extraordinary it's, salvage job. Yes, it is. <laughs> and like, like you said, they did... It's not like they just skinned all the animatronics and put new suits on them. They did actually add a lot of theming to it. They added a lot of nicer animatronics that are real animatronics or uh, just at least better models of a lot of the characters from Monsters, Inc. Yeah. And they just used these uh, CPA characters to kind of flesh out the world a bit more and, and give some more life to it and leave those animatronics and not have to rip out the hydraulic systems and, and move them. But yeah, I, I'm mixed because I, I love a good good dark ride. And I think even even still like the theming on it still is pretty sparse and weird and it's it's a it's a strangely paced ride too like i i don't love it as a ride but as far as an improvement on the its original thing like it's it's incredible like how how well they did it i just kind of hate that area of the park it's like the only part of of california adventure that feels like old california adventure because it's still in a bad fake studio backlot, mm-hmm. it's it's between Philhar Magic, which is a bastardized version of a better ride elsewhere, where it's this or experience elsewhere, where it's this 3D movie that plays, but elsewhere it's this big grand experience, and in, in California Adventure it's it's a smaller screen. Uh, it's between that and God, my my least favorite thing in DCA, which is up until now the only marvel presence in the park which was just they built like an airplane hangar where there's a a jet outside and the characters will stand out there and like talk to you it's 
they brought the military it's, into the into theme parks. It's weird, right? It's it's the fourth episode of WandaVision, which I despised, like in theme park mm-hmm. form. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. People get excited for seeing military, uh, yeah, bosses coming. You're like, yay! Yeah. Ugh. So it's like the it's like the this this garish leftover part of the park that I don't like going to. So I think that like adds to me not wanting to go into this, but. There's never a wait. It's a great like ride to ride because you just like walk on and walk off. Yeah, it's great. It's uh, it's nice. I always leave smiling, which for me is a definition of a of a good ride. Yeah, but this is another true. area where the real world comes into decision making. Like apparently there were all of these plans to. If you ever visit Disneyland, there is this big part next to the entrance of the of the of the parks where all the bosses park. There is like a lot of space in that esplanade. And Disney has been trying for a long time to get permission from the from the government to kind of expand that way. And that's exactly mm-hmm. behind um, kind of this area of Hollywood backlot. And there has been stories that they don't know what to do with this square. They want to get rid of it, but they don't have space to do anything. And as long as they don't get permission to kind of push that park that way, they don't have space. This is the same reason why Galaxy Edge is in Disneyland and not in DCA. It's... Mm-hmm. Not a lot of people drive on the back of the Disneyland Resort, but if you drive behind DCA, you drive like a meter away from California Screaming. Like it's right there by the street and by the walkway. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's definitely worth looking at Google Maps to get a picture of how tightly, uh, how dense this park is. You can see from above like how much all of the ride they, they call them show buildings. That's where a lot of the actual rides are, are based. And the, you can just see how little space there is. And previously, DCA was just this, was a parking lot that they repurposed and they built a parking garage. I'm just I'm just sharing my screen here with Carl because it's, they, it's literally right next to the street. All of these things. Yeah, it, it's, it's really crazy. I... I cannot imagine how much it drives Disney crazy that they just can't buy Amazon or Anaheim and <laughs> buy and tear it down. Yeah, which is some of the stories. It's uh, a tangent. There's these crazy stories of how when they were buying land in Disney World, they had to create like 30 or 50 like shell companies to go buy yeah. the different pieces of land because if anyone heard that it was... Even though there was nothing... If anyone heard that they were trying to do something altogether, they would jack the prices up. So they were very, very intentional about it. Um, but Disneyland is always going to continue to operate on a resource constraint, especially for space. Weirdly, I live currently about 15 minutes away from what was an, another proposed Disney World site. What? Oh, for the Virgin, for the America Disney or one of those? No. No, so whenever, so yeah, you're you're referencing back in like Eisner's time, they were flirting with doing like, uh, what what was it called? Disney America or America Sing, not America Sings? I don't know what it was. But it's something like that. There was some. There was like they were thinking about doing like a another American park somewhere, probably more in like the East Coast Virginia area. But if you go back to the '60s when Disney was looking at another location. Uh, the the a few locations kind of 
popped up. Essentially, Disney wanted a lot of land for cheap. That was the requirement. So West Virginia was an area that was investigated. Florida was looked at, and central Oklahoma was as well, or northeastern Oklahoma, because by the, the time he was looking, a lot of the oil had dried up here, the land was cheap, plentiful, lots of plains, pretty decent weather most of the year, except for the occasional tornado. There's a world in which that happens, because it was cheap land they could buy secretly. I think I've told you this story about Mexicans are very angry that we sold California to the U.S. because we would have had Disneyland if it wasn't for them. <laughs> you, would had, you would have had Disneyland, you would have had Google, you would have had yeah. a lot of stuff. Silicon Valley, San Diego would be awesome. We don't have to change the names of any place. Los Angeles, San Francisco, everything is the same. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it did make sense, right? They have the East Coast, they have the West Coast, they need the Midwest. Is Oklahoma Midwest? How is it considered? Well, the central, I guess. Flyover state. Yeah, it's... I consider it Midwest. Some people here consider it the South, which it is certainly not. Like, tech, where I lived in Southeast Texas is was barely the South. I I don't know. I, I consider it kind of vaguely the Midwest. But even then, it like doesn't even... Midwest starts more in Kansas. It's kind of just this no man's land between a bunch of stuff. Yeah, as a person that cares about geography, it makes no sense that the Midwest is on the east of the country. The Midwest oh, no, should be all. like Montana and Idaho and Utah, not Ohio and <laughs> Illinois and St. Louis. But I mean, I mean, it just goes back to the, the history of all that stuff in the West just wasn't part of what we considered American civilization at the time. And then we figured it out, so we changed the names. (laughs) We did. Okay, so in the spirit of of wrapping this up, what are like some takeaways that we can we can take from what lessons we can learn from this as a case study? So I, I think a big one for me is that this is something I complain about all the time and talk about all the time with movies. Is there's just kind of this trade off between artistic sensibilities and budgets and like you kind of have to be willing to spend and try and iterate in order to to make anything good and if you're not willing to do that then you're going to at like best make something that's not as good as you could have made and at worst make a superstar limo <laughs> i think that's the biggest for me as well i i guess kind of the next version of this world is when bob iger came in they spent 1.6 billion dollars renovating the park and expanding it and changing a ton of stuff it's a pretty good park now which is more money than it costs to build yeah but uh, that's a big one i think another one for me I, I mentioned it throughout the episode is how like context matters a lot and while we see a decision especially for things that already exist that we, we weren't paying attention as they were made we it's just very easy to critique either in a good or a bad way but just how context matters, like all the companies are people and people make decisions for X or Y reason because they had a bad night, because somebody, a close friend passed away, because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they went to Aspen and somebody had, you know, a California burrito for breakfast and was like, yeah, California, you know, like, <laughs> and it's just one of these things where, you know, people say it's uh, it's the Steve Jobs um, speech. It's easy to connect the dots backwards. But yeah. as, as life happens and as these decisions happen, they are not kind of so natural. And just it's a, it's a reminder for me 
in my life to be very, I've tried to be very thoughtful and conscious because I know that I want to be able to look back and say, you know, it was the best decision at the time for X and Y reason and trying to never, you know, there is a lot of decisions that are going to be bad, quote unquote, trying to say, you know, it was the best decision at the time with the information that I had, in the context that I had, I made the best I could. And sometimes yeah. it's not going to work, but it's, uh, I don't know, puts things in perspective. This became very uh, deep all of a sudden. Any Anything else for you? That's what I like. And I, I think that's exactly it. If if you're not intentional with what you're doing and, and how what you're thinking and what your work represents, then you can dig yourself into a hole where it costs more money to get out of it than to, to get yourself into it. And it's... Whenever your brand is built around a certain level of quality... And in, I mean, in this case, theming and just attention to detail. Whenever you fail to meet that expectation, it's often worse for you than your peers. Like, Superstar Limo would not be out of place at Six Flags, Mm -hmm. like an hour (laughs) away. (laughs) Yeah, it would still be a bad Six Flags, but still. Closer, Closer to the norm. If Six Flags released a Superstar limo, nobody would think about Superstar. Like, no, nobody would blink. But in this case, it was such a bad drop in quality that, like, that's really damaging to a brand. And I think that's why they had to close it within a year. It's crazy. What's the saying? It takes a uh, hundred years to build a reputation or a brand and one bad decision to destroy it. Or how? how is it? Yeah. It's, not, it's not exactly right, but... I, I'll take it that that's the sentiments, right? Yeah. Something along the lines. I have an AUA for you based around mm-hmm. this and based around something I said earlier. Shoot. If you could go back and experience any defunct Disney attraction or ride or anything that just doesn't exist today, what would that be? Any park, anywhere, anytime. I have two. Okay. And just for context, this was a quick answer. We didn't edit out 45 seconds of me thinking. <laughs> One in each resort in the US. Okay. Disneyland, I would really like to go to um, Country Bear Jamboree. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a thing that I would enjoy. And <laughs> spend some time just looking at it. I love the Tiki Room. The Tiki Room was a huge thing in my childhood. Going to, to eat now, it's jarring. Some things are very loud, but yeah. <laughs> it's like very whimsical. And the Country Bear Jamboree, for those of you who don't know, it was like a show where animatronic bears played music. It was like a band of bears. It's still in the Florida park. There's still one in Magic Kingdom. Really? Yeah, you can still and do it in Magic the same, Kingdom. Same level? Well, like maybe it's not the original. Yeah. And that's why I want to do it. Well, that's good to know. It's not original. I mean, and that's kind of the thing with all the Disneyland rides is anything that's gone is kind of miss the primacy of it but yeah, yeah okay. you can still go see okay. it do it and then the other one it's also in the in disney world is one that still exists but it's not the same and that's journey into imagination mm-hmm. which is this non-ip ride that um tony baxter created about you know what imagination is and how it works and yeah it was a very it's very long it had these whimsical characters 
uh, including Gwyn Figment and the Dreamfinder. And it's been redone a couple of times. They've tried to bring it back to close to what it was, but the Dreamfinder is not there. And it's one of those rides that has like a cult following and I never wrote it, so I'll never know. But from what I read online, it's something that I would really enjoy. Uh, it seems like Epcot is just full of super, was super full of super long dark rides, which sounds amazing. But I think it would be those two. What about you? The, the answer absolutely is just kind of all of opening day Epcot. Like, specifically if they call out some if they call out something i want to write horizons which is mm-hmm. kind of the like all-time great dark ride apparently it's so i mentioned spaceship earth earlier the geodesic dome if you go inside that it's kind of a, a history of man and technology if you so horizons is kind of like the sequel or like you kind of go do it later and it's about what the future will be like and it's just all this like cool trippy imagery with lots of good robots and at the end you get to choose which future you go to and you like go see a different future and it, the ride changes which is so ahead of its time for the early 80s and just that would be that's the like absolute answer for sure for me uh another like weird footnote one is that did you know that there used to be a hovercraft ride in Disneyland yes I found out about this the other day. So there were, it was called Flying Saucers, and it was essentially bumper cars with hovercrafts. And this was like, if not opening day, I think it was a few, it was like early 60s for a few years in, in Disneyland. And like guests would just get on, and it was this big kind of air hockey table that had this technology. Yeah, and air hockey. And yeah. you would just like bounce around and drive around on a hovercraft and bump into people. It looks so much fun. <laughs> So much fun. Yeah, I saw it. It looks a little bit similar to... I think Disney Sea has something not, like that now, but it's on, on water. But yeah, this one flying looks fascinating. Yeah. just I think just that would be fun. I mean, it's I wouldn't actually prioritize it above like a lot of the OG Epcot stuff, like Cranium Command or Journey into Imagination. Or even... I was in Epcot with Maelstrom there and didn't go. And I'm so sad I didn't go to Maelstrom, which is the... Which is that Finland? Norway. 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 The Nor- Norwegian yeah. part of the ride, which is now frozen. I I wish I had ridden the original weird troll ride that was there. But even things like Ellen's uh, Energy... How is it called? Journey? Adventure? Energy Adventure something. or something like that. I think that ride was like an hour and a half. Have you heard about this? Yeah. It, yeah. It's like an hour and a half because it included a movie and then the theater opened and then your thing moved. And you went into this yeah. other place, like what? These these were ambitious people. Um, but yeah, that's not Epcot. Epcot is a park that I haven't been in twenty five years, and it, I think it's in the middle of a remodel still. But uh, it seems like it would be my jam. Oh, I mean, Epcot is the ultimate theme park nerd theme park because it's. It's got the best theming as far as attractions because it's this weird, bad retrofuturistic stuff from the 80s. And then, like, these pretty cool recreations of countries with great, actual, authentic food. So it's just, you have great food, you have great entertainment, you've got, like, you used to have all these weird, trippy rides that are gone. Like, it's it's definitely cool. It's, it's not as cool as it used to be, but it's, 
a pretty cool experience and yeah you you would love it one day together we'll do a special Lepcot episode yeah live well until we can you know meet up live in epcot and do that we just have this podcast and we have reached the end of our podcast this week <laughs> so thank you for joining us on this trip back in time to this horrific awful disaster of a ride please like i encourage you to go down rabbit holes and and look at all the footage of this and old disney california adventure and just revel in the the gaudy glory of it all it's a lot of fun and we had i I probably had more fun prepping for this episode than anything we've done so far (laughs) yeah yeah remember to rate subscribe follow us on twitter stalking death pod where you'll see a lot of we'll post a lot of the things that we talked about and tell your friends and we'll we'll talk to you next week thanks everyone for listening bye